0: Good morning, I'm Jerry. I'm an alcoholic. It's nice to see you guys here and I hope you're having a good time this weekend and I hope you come back next year. Thank you very much for being here. It's my pleasure at this time to introduce my old friend Jeffrey from Nevada. I met him about 30 minutes ago. And no, no, you know how that goes. We're friends. I, I, it doesn't take long to become friends with somebody in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, he's on fire for AA, and he has a lot of friends here. When he walked in the door, a lot of people went up to say hello to him. So I'm not going to take any more of his time. I'm going to introduce Jeffrey. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry. My name is Jeffrey. I'm an alcoholic. And it's great to be here this morning, and I want to thank the committee, and I want to thank Monica and my host, Duke and uh... the speakers have been wonderful this whole event has been really great and look at this room on sunday morning how fabulous is that thank you guys for coming out you know i can tell just by the room and the energy in here that the people in this room have the same passion that i have for alcoholics anonymous and this morning i get to talk a little bit about what i was like and what happened and what i'm like today and i grabbed the big book and i said hey can i borrow the big book off the literature table because i always like to talk I, i like to have the book here because when I asked the gentleman to be my sponsor, he said, Jeffrey, my responsibility is to keep you in the book and guide you through the steps. And he said, but when we're reading the book, I want you to identify stuff in there, and I want you to see if you can find yourself in the book. And so when we're reading the doctor's opinion, and uh, it says, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol, you had me at that moment. I knew that I, I, I needed what you guys, you know, I wanted what you guys had, but I also belonged here because I definitely like the effect produced by alcohol. and. You know, I'm gonna tell you a journey of mine that, uh, you know, I started drinking at the age of 13 and I always kinda talk about some of the consequences that I had, because everybody in this room had consequences for their behavior and nobody knew the price they were gonna pay to earn your chair in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, no one gets to know on that journey when I went down to the park and had a drink and was drinking, some older kids were down there and they were drinking red wine and white wine. They said, hey, you want some? (laughs) Yeah, I do, (laughs) what do you got? Oh, gosh, that tastes awful. Man, do I like the way that feels. Oh, that's terrible. and <laughs> But I didn't have any consequences except for I liked the way it made me feel. And, you know, as we're here today, it was great with the sobriety countdown last night because we were talking. There was two people with seven days, another person with 29 days, and over the weekend, Getting to talk to people during the break and sitting in the back, and there's a gentleman. I hope I could see him. Maybe he'll raise his hand if he was here. But I know today he has 130 days because yesterday when we were talking, he had 129 days. You know, and and that's why we're here. We're here to carry the message that says, if you want to come to AA and you want to get what we have, you know, you have to show up. And you get to a, come to a conference like this and hear some tremendous speakers, and you get to hear and see the fellowship in action. And I think that's what I love. And that's why I like going to conferences and you know, being a part of all that stuff. And we're going to find out if we talk to anybody in here with some sobriety, they would tell you that the key to their sobriety is service. You know, and there's a whole bunch of people that took the time to be a part of the uh, Sobriety by the Sea so they could make this weekend happen. And they've been doing it for 33 years. What a gift that is. You know, and the first thing Jerry says is, hey, see you next year for the 34th annual Sobriety by the Sea. And you know what, people look forward to it all year long because this is what we get to do and it's a way to be of service and a way to show up and you know, what a gift that is. And to be a part of it is really something special. You know, I, uh, I hope if there's any, let me see the show of hands of people with less than a year of sobriety. Fantastic, you yeah. know. We're here because we want to carry the message of hope to, to everyone to get enthusiastic about AA. But I also, let me see with people of hands with people of 20 years or more. Raise your hands. <laughs> Look around at that. You know. The reason why I do that is because I want to thank those people for keeping the doors open. Because it's those guys that have the commitment and service, because when I walk in here broken and afraid and lost and, and with no hope, there's people who made the coffee, set up the chairs, somebody volunteered to be the secretary, they opened the meeting, and they made it happen so I could come in there so ashamed, so broken, so afraid, and, and without hope. And, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about that. So I'm really grateful for the people with long-term sobriety who, who keep showing up to Alcoholics Anonymous and, and have a commitment and make this, this program keep alive and well, because without the long-timers, we don't get to see the newcomers and we know that that's the lifeblood of our program so I'll talk a little bit about you know that journey from that park and having that wine and you know as I talked about I like the way it made me feel you know it also I was reading the doctor's opinion because uh, at the end when the doctor says he needs a mental uplift he was thinking about a couple guys but there was there was somebody that he, he had worked with a year before but didn't even recognize his features and he was remembering that when he came in, he was a broken, despairing, nervous wreck of a human being. And now, a year later, he was brimming over with contentment. And I thought, man, how do you get that? That's what I want. I want some contentment. What is contentment? But I don't know what it is, but I definitely want some of that. And uh, Because all I know is fear, anxiety, pain, sadness, grief, loss, and I'll talk a little bit about that. But I mean... So when I saw a guy who was a trembling, nervous, despairing wreck is now brimming over with contentment. This man, how do you do it? And my sponsor says, the way you do it is you start working the steps. And, uh, but I've got to get to some drinking, because we got to get to the drinking before I can get to some steps. I can assure you that. Because I've got to qualify for this program. And I qualify because I lost the ability to control my drinking. You know, I qualify because the consequences that happen to me aren't what makes me alcoholic. What makes me alcoholic is the day that I I put something in my body, I crave more alcohol. I have mental obsession and physical craving for more alcohol, so if the consequences don't match up, I just want you to get the ideas and the feelings and emotions around it, because I really liked what alcohol did for me. So when I was uh, 16, oh you know I like to identify myself as like this defiant kind of I just don't like anything. I don't like my parents. I don't like school. I don't like the police. I don't like to be told no. I'm into instant gratification. I want what I want when I want it. And so they described me as spoiled. But I, I didn't know that at that time. I was, you know, I didn't think I was spoiled. I thought I was just quirky. I thought I was just a little, you know... Um, <laughs> Hey, man, I just like to party. That's all we called it back in the 80s, in the, in the 70s, in the 80s. We called it partying, and that's what we did, and that's what I was good at. I can assure you that. And so um, at 16 years old, you know, I, I had been drinking and driving long before I ever had a driver's license, and the only reason I know that is because I was hanging around with those guys in the park, and they were getting arrested for DUI and going to jail, and they didn't have a driver's license, and I was, you know, 15, and they just tossed me the keys. I was always overweight and big and large for my size, and they're like, come on, let's go. I just get in the car and start driving around. I don't, you know, I don't have a license. So I was drinking and driving long before. So you won't be surprised when I'm 16, and I have a valid driver's license, and I'm drinking around. And I sneak out, and I, uh, I'm, I'm drinking rum with my friends. But I go into a blackout. And I don't know what a blackout is. I don't know blackout is alcohol-induced amnesia. And, and my short-term memory doesn't work, but my long-term memory does. And so I'm driving around the streets of Nevada. That's why I live in Marin County about 20, 20 miles north of the Golden Gate Bridge, and uh, I'm driving around the streets in Nevada and a red light appears, I kind of come out of the black, oh, it's the police, I pull over, hey, what's happening? Oh, I know this officer by name, hey, Mike, how are you doing? And uh, he's like, have you been drinking? Yes, sir. <laughs> I'm going to arrest you. For what? <laughs> are you kidding me? What are you talking about, going to arrest me? And so... Um, so now I'm, I'm 16, I'm in the back of the car, and I have this idea that says, man, I am going to tell this police officer exactly what I think of him. Oh, come on. <laughs> it's a brilliant idea, because I leaned in, and I just told this I was awful. And I said, the most awful things that anybody could say to any human being, no less a police officer, but I assumed it wasn't the first time he heard it, because he knew what to do, because he brought the car to a stop. He stomped on the gas, so I slid back in the plastic seat, and he. Sh- I on the brakes, so my face went wham! <laughs> now I'm yelling and screaming, and I'm stuffed between the seats, and it didn't get any better the rest of the night, I can, I can assure you that. So when my mother, they called my parents, and when my mother came to get me, you know, I've got this big shiner in my eye, and my clothes are torn, and look what they did to me. I didn't do anything. you know. I'm a middle child. I have an older brother and a younger brother, so I always like to say I take no responsibility for any of my behavior. I always have someone else to blame. And so, (laughs) you know, so when I went to court, it was a a $65 fine and a 90-day restricted driver's license. This is 1976. I'm 16 years old. And so my mother wrote a check for $65, and I drove every day because the rules of life don't apply to me. At least that's the way I think. Now, my wife is here today, and she would say, he still doesn't think the rules of life apply to him. <laughs> and she would be right. <laughs> you know, I, uh, and, and I have a couple examples, but they're very simple. It's like, you know what, if, if the speed limit is 70, that means I could do 78 without getting a ticket. Because <laughs> I think I'm under the legal limit of getting a speeding ticket. So, that, so she says, Jeffrey, you're speeding. I'm not speeding. I'm doing 78 in a 70. That is not speeding. So those are the kind of twisted thinking that I have, you know. I just want to let you know, and the, and the book describes that, and more about he- and now about health, right? It says, you know, depression and twisted thinking does not vanish in a twinkling, you know, and um, and it hasn't vanished. I want to tell you my sobriety date. My sobriety date is is May 6, eighty eight, and so I'm thirty one years sober. Yeah, I can never tell. (laughs) Applauding that is crazy, right? It's like, you guys have done me the world's biggest favor, and I'm lucky to save my seat here. And I'm lucky to do everything I can to to keep my sobriety in place because I know that alcoholism and drug addiction and, and sobriety is such a precious, fragile gift that I have to cultivate it and nurture it and take care of it. And so I appreciate the applause, but I also understand, you know, man applauding applauding long-term sobriety is like man I, I I don't know how to uh, I don't know how to say this except for the fact that you know I'm grateful to be sober and, I, and I'm just really glad that you know a works so I can keep my seat and I can keep my sobriety and so uh, for all the new people man that's that's what we do we get to stay here and, and do the very best we can and not pick up any minor moon affecting chemicals one day at a time you know uh, when I was a youth, I was always in trouble with the law. I was always in trouble. They knew who I was. I told you I knew the police officer by name, and I told you that the rules of life didn't apply to me. So if I take you through that journey of just as I kind of expedite through my uh, my teens and my early 20s, because uh, what happens is, you know, I got a few open container tickets right after the DUI, so now I'm 17. and and the guys at the park were teaching me my morals and my values and the older guys in the neighborhood were teaching me how things like to, to lie, cheat, steal, manipulate, take advantage of people, that's the way I was, I was going and so you won't be surprised that when I was 17 years old and uh, I had my very first dead battery, I knew exactly what to do because in 1977 all you need to do is move the latch over, lift up the hood of the car, unbolt the battery, lift up your car, put it in there and away you go and uh, so that happened one day, and the person next door neighbor came out to go to work, 7 o'clock in the morning, and of course I'm not the sharpest tool in the shit. I just threw my battery in the ditch, what are you kidding me? And so she's got no, a battery missing, she calls the Novato police and, <coughs> could you open up the hood of your car please? Hey, how'd that get in there? I didn't take it, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and so... <laughs> So I'm arrested for petty theft and malicious mischief. And because the courts in Marin County, they were, they knew I had been in trouble and they knew about the DUI and several open containers and all the other stuff that I was doing and trouble at school. And so they thought, you know, we're going to send them out to the Scared Straight program in San Quentin Prison. Yeah. And so uh, now it's beyond Scared Straight, right? They had to up it a, a little bit because... <laughs> in 1977, when I go out to the Scared Straight program, you know, I am not... I'm, I'm, I'm really nervous about going in a, into the prison and I'm really afraid but the people are nice and they're talking to you and they're like hey man come check it out and you know who wants to sit in a cell I do <laughs> so you know I lay in the cell I put my feet I said I could live here this is not you know <laughs> it was that kind of arrogance and so and then well, <laughs> but what happens is the day and time comes where the the inmates all take your shoes and now they get in your face and they start yelling and screaming. And I'm like, and now I start crying because I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm like, you don't understand. They said, hey, look, if you don't change your behavior and you don't change your attitude, you're gonna end up in a place like this or worse. And what's the big book say? Thanks for the information. Great, got it. Okay, no problem. You know, but now I'm crying and I'm afraid, and I just said, Hey, you don't understand. You don't understand, my parents don't understand, the police don't understand, I'm just out having a good time. What's the big deal? And that's the best I can do with taking any responsibility for my behavior. As I stand here before you. You know, 59 years old and 31 years sobriety, you know, I don't take any responsibility for my behavior. And when I'm in my 20s, I'm 20 years old and I'm hanging out with those same guys and, you know, I'm not stealing. I, but I have, but they, they were stealing and they said, hey, Jeffrey, would you, like a, would you like to buy a tremendous deal on this stereo? Oh, you bet I would. How about that camera? Would you like that? I would love to have that. That'd be sensational. So I had a whole bunch of great stuff. And, um, and I bought it at a tremendously reduced price. And my friend was arrested for a burglary. And he said, hey, I want to let you know, I've been selling all that stuff to Jeffrey. <laughs> that's the Marin County Task Force, as they come charging in the door, wanted to. So I'm arrested and convicted of felony receiving stolen property. What are you talking about? I didn't steal anything. You know, <laughs> that's my response to everything, because I can't, if I, I had no idea that if you knowingly purchase stolen items, you're committing a felony, and so I found out, and I was arrested and convicted for that. So now I'm a 20-year-old convicted felon, and they wanted to send me out to San Quentin to the or they wanted they wanted to sentence me to four years in the penitentiary, but in 1980 there was something called the Victims' Bill of Rights had just been enacted, and so what they did is they put me out, they sentenced me to the Marin County Jail. I got out on work furlough so I can be civilly sued and made make financial responsibility right make financial reimbursement for the people that uh, that lost all that property and so that's what happened for me and, and you know I again if that guy wouldn't have turned me in I wouldn't have got caught I wasn't doing it. you know that's how I justify all that stuff so let me take you out to uh, you know I could stand here and tell you all kinds of drinking and driving stories and having car accidents and getting in trouble and all kinds of stuff like that and we all kind of get that I want to bring you up to 1984 where I, I, I get a second DUI and now I'm 24 years old and I'm thinking I know the day and time is going to come where I'm going to have to stop drinking. I know that there's something not quite, you know, that I've got a problem with alcohol. And so uh, I have to go to a First offender DUI program. And uh, I thought, man, I better listen to hear what this guy says. Because they didn't have DUI schools when I'm in 1976 when I was 16 years old. But now that I'm 24, 1984, they said, hey, come check it out. And so I went to the DUI class, man, and I listened in. He says, tonight we're going to talk about alcoholism. I thought, man, what is it? All right, what do you got? If you drink alone, the chances are you got a problem with alcohol. I've been drinking alone since I was 13. How do people who live alone drink alone? <laughs> oh, I don't know, I, but I went home that night and I told my roommate, hey, I'm going to move out, and that way I can live alone, and I can drink alone, and I won't have a problem with alcohol. <laughs> that guy gave me so many great suggestions that night. He said things <laughs> like, if you buy your alcohol at a bunch of different stores, you're hiding how much you're drinking. I'm not hiding. I'm just thrift-wise. I'm just looking for the best deal in town. I'm not hiding how much I'm drinking. And um, I had never heard the term geographic. I was living in Petaluma at the time. I'm going to move down to San Rafael. It's a 20-mile stretch. That's not far enough to qualify for a geographic. <laughs> it qualifies when I think I'm going to go to a new town and make a fresh start and have a new, you know, it's going to be different this time. And uh, the guy at the DUI school says, hey, if you get another DUI within five years, the chances are you got a problem with alcohol. I can't get caught for the next five years. <laughs> All right. Uh, game on. So here it is. I, so now I've moved down to Novato, and I was, uh, or I moved to San Rafael, and, you know, it didn't take very long. T- I started going to the bars and meeting people who drank like I did and partied like me. And uh, I met this gal, and she invited me over to her house. She said, Jeffrey, I can't believe it. She said, last Sunday night the Mill Valley Police Department pulled me over. They thought I was under the influence of alcohol. They asked me to recite the alphabet backwards. I said, what are you kidding me? You can't even do that sober. You know, there's no way. I gotta get this down. So it's Z-Y-X-W-V-U-T-S-R-Q-P-O-N-M-L-K-J-I-H-G-F-E-D-C-B-A. Yeah. The book says I can drink with impunity, and that's what I was thinking. <laughs> you know, I, I love the fact that you guys like that. You know, I, I like that. Because now I'm taking some responsibility for my drinking, because now I'm really, you know, I'm starting to pull it together and, and things are doing okay. The book describes that as insanity, by the way. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, I see it was uh, drinking with impunity, and they think it is a, just a form of insanity. And so, what happens for me is that, you know, I don't change my behavior and, and I learn the alphabet backwards, and it buys me that arrogance, and I'm just full of myself and you know, I'll just take just a moment because we're going to talk about 19 in the 1980s when my, you know, I like to take anything to change the way I feel, and so when my best friend, you know, I use cocaine, I smoke marijuana, I drink a lot of alcohol, and he says, hey, Jeffrey, I'm going to sell you an eight ball. What's an eight ball? An eight ball is uh, three and a half grams of cocaine, and $350 worth, and I'm going to sell it to you for $110. hundred and, oh, my gosh, my eyes got big and my heart. At $110, I can't afford not to do it. This is great. And so." <laughs> So now I had what people wanted, and people were showing up and coming around, and I described them as a lot of 15-minute friends because they'd roll by the house for 15 minutes, get what they need, and, and see me in a few hours. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, that went on and on, but but let's talk about reality because if, uh, if, you're, if your life is like mine, that you start to, and the book talks about withdrawing from society. You know, my world's getting smaller and smaller, and I can't see a way out, and uh, you know I had a chance in 1987 on March 1st 1987 my mother uh, said hey me and my mother had a little incident a few months back where I told her I I think I had a problem with alcohol and uh, and she said oh you know what I have a friend who stopped drinking so I'm going to uh, I'm gonna take you to an AA meeting I'm like don't be that don't overdo it I don't think I'm going to an AA meeting she says okay you know what I avoided my mother it took her about three months it was a Sunday morning she called me up she says we're going to the to the noon meeting at the Howard Johnson's in Mill Valley today be ready and so I went down to the noon meeting I I didn't know I didn't know anything about honesty open-minded and willingness you know I had a desire to get my mother off my back I didn't have a desire to stop drinking I just you know so we went down there and I have never seen the 12 traditions I've never seen the 12 steps I have no idea what any of it is I've never met a sober person. I don't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous, but I could tell you that I went in there and I was not happy. I was really not happy. I looked at step one and said, I am not powerless over alcohol. My life, is, you know, I got money in the bank and I travel around and I go to work every day. I, I, have, I don't get it. I don't, what does what number two say? Oh, that's some kind of Greek mythology power-grain-yourself thing. I don't even. Oh my gosh! Do you see what three says? Look at what three. That says God. Oh no! Oh no! That's it. I'm. Not, I'm. I'm not. You know. I see the word God, and I interpret the word religion, and uh, and I just said no. And so when the speaker was done talking. We, we just left. They had a cigarette break in 1987 and we hit the parking lot and we left. And the way I describe that whole experience is that I had my foot in the door of Alcoholics Anonymous and I wasn't honest, open-minded, or willing. I had a desire to stop drinking. I knew the day and time was going to come where I was going to have to stop drinking, but I didn't, uh, you know, it was great. I was reading this morning too because uh, on page 48 it talks about, you know, even casual reference to spiritual things made us bristle with antagonism. I'm like, that's it. That's my life. You know, my life is bristling with antagonism. I really like that sentence. And so as I kind of get sober and I'm going through stuff and anything I don't like that makes me bristle with antagonism, I can put my finger on it and I can label that. Oh, that makes me bristle with antagonism. (laughs) Oh, that makes... are you kidding me? That makes me... Oh, that makes me bristle with antagonism. I love that. So one day... I say to my sponsor, oh, man, does that make me bristle with antagonism. (laughs) I said, you know, that's my favorite line in the book. And he says, you know what my favorite line in the book is? My favorite line in the book is the next line. What's the next line? I don't remember. (laughs) He's clever that way. So, So I had to go and find the page, 48, and the very next line is, that sort of thinking must be abandoned. (laughs) What? I finally found, you know, my jam right there in the book and uh, that sort of thinking must be abandoned. And so that's what, you know, when we're talking about that stuff, so I have to be careful, you know, I have to be careful because when things make me bristle with antagonism, I have to kind of figure out a way to abandon that kind of thought process. And, uh, you know, so I spent the next 13 months drinking and using. I had that one day I went in the rooms and said, no, th- no thanks, not me. And uh, so that means, the book talks about, it, and that means I had to be beaten into a state of reasonableness. <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, Bill writes about, you know, some of us are nipped by the ringer and are able to come in here and hold it together, and some of us have to be pretty badly mangled, so I'll kind of talk to you about my journey right now, because uh, I want everybody in the room to think about your last 90 to 100 days before you got to the Rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, it was the spring of 1988, and uh, there was a lot of passing out and coming to, and It was April 10th, 1988, and I had come to on a Sunday morning and thought, man, I want to go to the A's game. It was opening weekend of baseball season, and I'm going to, you know, so I had a few kamikazes, smoked a little marijuana, stopped by the liquor store and got a six-pack, and thought, you know, I cruised over to the game, and everything was looking pretty good, and right at Golden Gate Fields in Albany, right where Berkeley is, uh, the the highway kind of merges into four lanes there on Highway 80, and... I reach down for my beer, I look up, and traffic has stopped right in the back of a car, I slam my car, and now I'm standing out, how long has it been since my last DUI, it's been four years and one month, oh my god, if the high patrol comes, Z Y X W V U T S R Q P O N M L K J I H G F E D C B A. cool, got it, if the police come, I totally got this, well the high patrol doesn't show up, no police come to the scene of the accident, I exchange my name and number with the person, Drag my car off to University Avenue, get a fresh six-pack, get on BART, take BART to the A's game. <laughs> I'm not an early quitter, I can assure you that. And after the game, I took BART into San Francisco, got on the Golden Gate Transit, got back to my house in San Anselmo about 10 o'clock on that Sunday night, and I thought, man, that was close. You know, I had this euphoric recall that says, you know what, I can, I can, I'm doing okay, I can keep my wits about me. And it was 10 days later, it was April 20th, 1988, and I was... Uh, I was at work all day and I've been drinking all day at work and and it was the last game of the Warriors season and I thought, you know, I want to go to the Warrior game tonight. And so uh, I stopped by the liquor store and got a, you know, I I picked up a non-alcoholic beverage, a fifth of peppermint schnapps. (laughs) 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 I got a fifth of of schnapps and, uh, you know, cruised over to the the Warrior game and I had a few beers at the game and, man, I can describe my alcoholism and tugging feeling because I know when it's time for a drink. And so uh, so soon as the game ended I gave it that little half jog, half trot, and hustled out to the car, got to that fit the schnapps, knew I was gonna be okay one more time, and I started driving home and I got as far as the Richmond Fell Bridge and I paid the toll taker and I'm driving across the bridge and I'm speeding, I'm weaving out of traffic, and I reached out for my bottle, my car crosses over the center lane, I rear into a pickup truck, pickup truck cars inside the bridge, flips over and kills the driver instantly. And that's on April twentieth, nineteen eighty eight. And I stopped my car and I ran back and this person was lying dead on the Richmond-Sanafel bridge and I started screaming, oh my God, look what I've done because of my drinking. Oh God help me, what am I going to do? And The only thing I think to do was to kill myself, so I ran to the side of the bridge and I was about 40 or 50 feet above the water. I knew if I jumped off the bridge I wasn't going to die. And so I stood there full of denial thinking maybe I'm not drunk. You know, I've been drunk a thousand times. The truth of the matter was I was under the influence of alcohol. The high patrol came and arrested me and they booked me in the Marin County Jail and I was charged with second degree murder. And second degree murder is a term of 15 years to life in prison. And all I can do is sit in that jail cell and cry every 10 or 15 minutes, thinking, I had an accident 10 days ago. Why couldn't I learn from that? Why did someone have to die as a result of my behavior? You know, as I stand here this morning, I don't have the words to describe the shame, pain, humiliation, remorse, grief, sadness, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take you on a journey that's gonna tell you about how you guys of Alcoholics Anonymous saved my life. Because the people in this room made it safe for me to come in and, and carry my pain into a room where I couldn't, I, I couldn't hold it by myself. Um, what happened for me was that I had a chance to use the phone about ten or two o'clock in the morning and I called my mother and I just told her I'd killed someone on the Richmond-Sanafel bridge. She told me that she loved me, and she's glad I didn't hurt myself. You know, my mother came the next day to bail me out of the Marin County Jail, and I cannot describe to you when I looked into her eyes the pain and shame and guilt and remorse. You know, it wasn't until we read on page 30 that we reached a point of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. The moment I read those words on page 30, I knew we all had the same feelings. We didn't have the same experience, but we certainly had that same you know when we talk about that gift of desperation that pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization that's what ties us together and what happens is uh, you know my psyche is broken my psyche is completely crushed and and my mother can see that there's something not quite right with me and so she calls Kaiser Hospital and says my son has had this accident he needs to see the psychiatrist now so he said, come in at 1 o'clock. And I came in at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And I walked in. And it's, I, this woman psychiatrist, it was the first person I ever got honest with. I told this woman that I've been drinking and using since I was 13 years old. She said, Jeffrey, when you start drinking and using at such an early age, you stop growing emotionally. She said, emotionally, you're probably 14 or 15 years old. I said, thanks a lot. She said, you don't need to see a psychiatrist. You need to stop drinking. Oh, believe me, I never want to drink again. I can tell you I have not drank since April 20th, 1988, but that's not my sobriety date. My sobriety date is two weeks later because on a daily, for the next two weeks, I smoke marijuana on a daily basis, and I use cocaine on one, on one occasion to try to kill my own emotional pain. I had no idea that you guys came into AA and were talking about no mind or mood affecting chemicals. And what happens is, is that uh, she says, you need to see the alcohol counselor tomorrow. I went the next day to see this woman at Kaiser, and she said to me, you need to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. Nine, 90 meetings? I'm looking at 15 years to life in prison. You want me to go to 90 meetings in 90 days? And she says, well, what happens if I told you you were dying of cancer and you got to go to the doctor twice a day at 10 in the morning and 2 in the afternoon? I said, I'd, I'd go to the doctor. She said, you are dying. You're dying from alcoholism. And if you want to live, you have to go to a meeting a day. I couldn't say, yeah, bud. I couldn't say, you understand. I said, where do you go? And, uh, and she opened the drawer and pulled out a meeting schedule and said, here you go. You know, over the weekend, someone called my parents and said, hey, go, go see this attorney on Monday morning. I went to see this person. And he said, Jeffrey, that could have been me on the Richmond-Centraffield Bridge that night. My attorney said, I'm an alcoholic, and I haven't had a drink in three and a half years you need to get some treatment to deal with your feelings and your emotions but you can't go to treatment for the person that died or the judge or the court you have to go for yourself I said I'll do whatever you want me to do and uh, he picked up a phone and called this guy and said hey can you save this person a bed can you save Jeffrey a bed and he said sure and so two weeks later I was able to plea bargain down and I pled guilty to gross vehicular manslaughter with gross negligence which is a term of no more than 10 years in the penitentiary and I went off to this 28 day treatment facility and I was there about three weeks and they called me in the office and they said have a seat and they told me about the person I killed. He was a 38 year old doctor who had a wife and a a little girl and the miracle that happened in my life is that the widow had nothing but compassion for me she didn't want me to go to prison. The only thing that she wanted was to have people learn from my experience I can tell you that was a a Monday night when uh, when, I was, when they sat me down and told me about the person that died and and I was just so devastated and I, w- I was sitting in my room and it was movie night at the treatment center and I said I'm not going to movie night and I sat in there and I was reading the book and I, I was picking up the big book and I'm trying to find it, trying to make any sense of it and of course to the people who raised their hands and uh, and been here for a long time you know we used to have a page, it was called page 449 And page 449, it says, acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I am disturbed, it's because some person, place, thing, or some situation, some fact of my life is unacceptable to me, and I cannot accept that person, place, thing, or situation. And, and, you know, nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. And I thought, that's it. This is a mistake. This is the very first flaw I found in the big book. I am going to prove... That this is, you know, how, how, can, how, can you, how can anybody make sense of this? It, doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. Look, I'm, I'm 27 years old. All I do is I lie, cheat, steal, manipulate, take advantage of people. I hurt people. I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm just a horrible human being. I get it. You know, I was really sure that I thought AAs were bad people come to get good. It's where sick people come to get well. And I really had to take a note of that and and look at that. And so, you know, what happens for me is that, um, you know, I don't know how I'm going to live my life. I don't know. You know, drugs and alcohol took away every bit of self-esteem, self-respect, and dignity that I had. And how am I going to get that back? You know, and and I got out of treatment. I got out of treatment, and I started going to, uh, I lived in San Anselmo, so I started going to Fairfax for the 7 a.m. meeting. It's a 7 7 a.m., 7-day-a-week meeting. And there's about, we'll just say, 60 to 100 people there on any given day. And they go around the room and introduce themselves. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying anything. I'm not letting people know a wo- nothing. My name's Jeffrey. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a new guy, you know. They clap and it's like, okay. And does anybody want to share? I'm not, I don't, I don't want you to know anything about me. I don't want you to know. I, I'm just too afraid because I don't know what's going to happen. And what happens for me is that uh, one day the topic of suicide came up and I raised my hand from the back of the room and I told them what happened on the Richmond Centerfield Bridge that night. You know, and the people in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous said, Jeffrey, we need you here, we want you here, and we're glad you're here. You know, to the new people and to every single person in this room, we need you here, we want you here, and we're glad you're here. You know, what a gift that was because, uh, you know, what happens is, is that my attorney says, look, ask for some support. You know, I'm going to take you to the courtroom on July 26, 1988. But he said, Jeffrey, ask for some support, but you got to tell people this was not an isolated incident. This is my third DUI, my second felony conviction. I have nine open containers and two drug possession charges. And uh, I went to the rooms and I just said, hey, if anybody can come to court on that day, it would be great. And on the day I was sentenced, I had between 60 and 70 people in the courtroom were there. The widow was there with her little girl. You know, And the DA got up and said, hey, look, this guy's had lots of chances and lots of opportunities. And I recommend he serves no less than six years in the penitentiary. The widow wrote down a note that says she's been unable to work. She's been unable to feed her little girl. She's moved back into her parents' home. She's going to therapy on a daily basis. And please don't send Jeffrey to prison and judge said you know this is a close call but I'm going to give you a chance and he sentenced me to five years in the penitentiary I got a suspended sentence under the terms and conditions of my probation which were one I serve one year in a county jail two I attend seven AA meetings a week for five years and three I do fifteen hundred hours of community service work I can tell you that doing the, the doing the year in the Marine County Jail was the easy part because I didn't have to look people in the eye, I didn't have to talk to anybody I could feel sorry for myself I turned myself in on a Saturday night, Sunday night at 6 o'clock, A.A. in the mess hall. (laughs) What do you mean A.A. in the mess hall? Are you serious? You know, I didn't have any idea what H&I was, the hospitals and institution committee, people who volunteer their time to to bring meetings where people can't get out. And I can tell you it was great because they needed an inside secretary. I'll do it. And so for the next year, I got to be the inside secretary of the AA meeting while the H&I members came in every Sunday night. And I thought, man, these people are giving up their time and their energy to show up here. What a, what a cool job that is. And um, as a matter of fact, I thought it was the coolest job in AA. And so I couldn't wait to find, when I got out of jail, I went and found the H&I committee, the business committee, and I started volunteering at the homeless shelters and the detoxes. and, uh, and you know, I, I found out I had to be away from the Marin County Jail for a year before I could go back to take a meeting in there. But during that time, somebody had submitted my name to San Quentin Prison to get cleared. It's like, what are you, I have two felony, I, ju- I just got out of jail, I've been out of jail for less than six months, and I was cleared to go into San Quentin. And, uh, and I've been going into San Quentin for the last 30 years. And... Uh, You know I'm an active member of the H&I committee. We have a rotating committee for all the service levels and we also have, I got a clearance to go into the Marine County Jail and I was in there last Monday night. I was scheduled to be in San Quentin tomorrow night. Just got an email saying the prison's on lockdown so there's no meeting tomorrow night. And uh, maybe we'll do it the following week. Um, But that's, you know, the gift is, the people who've done service work, and you know what it's like to be here at Pelican Bay, and I'll talk about that in just a couple minutes, but, you know, you're on the prison's time. You're not on your own time. You get to show up when they say, and they, you get to do what they do, you know. Um, but let's just talk about, I want to take you just, you know, that's not what keeps, you know, being sentenced to the Marine County Jail, now i got to do 1,500 hours of community service work. and. Uh, so I get out of jail, and I start going around to different facilities, and he said, hey, uh, how does a guy get 1,500 hours of community service work? Oh, you're not doing him here. I can assure you that. And so I got turned down by 21 places, and I was going to the 7 a.m. meetings, and people say, Jeffrey, God's got a plan for you. I don't know what it is, but... God's got a plan for you. And on the 22nd place I went to, they made a place for me at the Marine County Drinking Driver Program. They said, will you straighten up chairs and set up and set up tables and do all that? And I said, absolutely. And so I started showing up there on a regular basis, and I was there five nights a week for 23 months. And, uh, and I was there about a month, and the instructor said, do you want to tell your story to the class? I said, I'd love to, because the only thing that the widow wanted was to have people learn from my experience. And... Uh, you know what happens for me last night we had the sobriety countdown and uh, and Diane was here from from Marin County she had 45 years of sobriety and in 1989 when I started doing my volunteer work Diane was the DUI instructor at that place (laughs) and I had no idea she was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous but I would go in there every week and then I would see her in the rooms and we built this friendship and and her husband, Brian, who was here last night, he stood up with 38 years of sobriety. And one of the biggest gifts, when I see Brian at meetings, he's the kind of guy that he just says to me, Jeffrey, when I see you sitting in the chair at an AA meeting, my heart is full. And there is no bigger compliment. It's not just just to have someone who is going to give you unconditional love and support. and I mean, that kind of stuff is just... It's just precious, and that's what we have for one another. It's just really amazing. And, you know, being the speaker here this morning is such a gift because I just want to talk about the grace of God. You know, I cannot describe to you the grace that this widow gave me, but you guys all can feel it and know it because what she wanted was to have people learn from my experience So I was going to the DUI programs, and I was there for two years, and I thought, you know what, this is my calling, this is what I want to do. So I went to the DUI program, I had done 1,200 hours of community service, I had 300 hours left, I'm like, hey, you know what, do you think you could train me, I'd like to get a job in the DUI field, and they said, absolutely not. (laughs) I'm like, why not? And They said, you don't have any experience. I said, I got all kinds of drinking and driving experience, are you kidding me? (laughs) <laughs> said, that's what they said. They laughed and I said, well, what do you need to do? You need to go to college. You need to go to school. And I put myself over in school at UC Berkeley and I became a certified drug and alcohol counselor. And I found out that uh, there was a person I was in treatment with who had a friend who worked at a DUI school in San Francisco. And uh, she called him up and I called this guy, Ed, up and said, hey, Ed. I told him all about me and he says, we want you at our school. I'm gonna to talk to the owner of the school. And in 1991, I got a job at a First Defender DUI program. And I've been going there and teaching classes and being real active and showing up. Now I, realize I am, that's not what I do for my sobriety. It's what I do for my work. And uh, I was there about five, y- Did someone clap to that? Oh man, I like that, thank you, that's, that's it. That's it, because, you know, and I heard someone say, I, you know, I always kind of give Clancy the credit of saying, he said, and I don't know if it's true, but I'll take it as gospel, because he said that, you know, there's an 89% relapse rate of people who get in the helping profession because they get so sidetracked of saying, hey, I'm working to talking with alcoholics and I'm doing this stuff all day. And I thought, man, I got to be careful. I got to be extra careful because I need to keep my AA program separate. I go to meetings, I have a sponsor, I sponsor guys, I have commitments, I'm involved and I'm active, and that's what I do for my sobriety. And what I do, for, thank you, that's nice. So, and what I do for my work is that I get to work in this DUI field, and I was there about five years, and the owner said, Jeffrey, I started the school in 1984, I've been holding on to it for a reason, and I didn't know what that reason was until I met you and I'd like you to have it. In 1996, I got, I got to, now, today I own and operate my own First Offender DUI program. It's not everybody's dream, goal, and desire to have a DUI school, I can assure you that. But you know what, it's mine. It's my dream, goal, and desire, because the only thing the widow wanted was to have people learn from my experience. And I can create an, an, an avenue where, you know, I don't always tell my story, but I always, a place where people are open and honest and willing to learn and, and I got a great staff and, you know, that's not what keeps me sober. What kept me sober is let's talk about the book and the program. You know, that's a real gift of sobriety, but the gift is let's talk about some personal integrity. Let's talk about what it's like to be powerless over alcohol and all of a sudden I have the power of choice. My sponsor came to me and said, Jeffrey, what's the difference between admitting I was an alcoholic and accepting the fact that I was an alcoholic? To admit it was to acknowledge I had a disease, and to accept it was to take responsibility for my disease. The only thing I've done properly in the last 31 years is take responsibility for my alcoholism. And uh, so now let's talk about, I told you how even casual references make me bristle with antagonism. How am I ever going to develop a relationship with a power greater than myself? Well that's exactly what this book is about, its main object. And so everybody in this room can walk into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous and read the pages in this book and develop a relationship with God as you understand Him. Look how many people there are in this room, and every single one of us can have our own conception of God, and nobody has to be wrong. Nobody has to be wrong. What a gift that is. You know, when I was in treatment, I... uh, And he said, hey, Jeffrey, I want you to go over and take a few minutes, and if God had a conversation with you, what would he say? You know, and I brought, I found the, I actually have the original right here in my hand. And there's two things I'll tell you about this. So I went over there, and here's what it says. Jeffrey, this is God. And I wanted to let you know that I'm here for you. All you have to do is do not resist this opportunity to let me love you. If you trust me and have faith in me, you'll be protected. Not on earth, but in the spiritual afterlife. Trust me, and you'll be safe and free. Don't be afraid. I love you, God. I'm like, where does that come from? And the book describes deep down within is the fundamental idea for every man, woman, and child of the power grain yourself. God as you understand him. And that's where they came from, deep down within. You know, I have this on this piece of paper. When I was sentenced in court that day, and I had between 60 and 70 people from the fellowship, when I got home that afternoon, I reached into my pocket, and someone had written down on a piece of paper, and it's right here, and it just says, because I was sentenced to seven meetings a week for five years, and it says 1,826 days, one at a time. We love you. You know, I don't know who said that. I don't know who put it in my pocket. But, you know, that, that's what you guys do. That's what you guys do to the broken people who come into our rooms and say, you know what, we will help you. You know, I had to sit down with my sponsor and find a place to do the third step. And we were able to do a third step. And he says, Jeffrey, you need to start writing on your fourth step. I said, why? He says... <laughs> Well, let's see what the book says. So on the bottom of page 63, just after we did the third step, it says, next we launched on a course of vigorous action. You turn it to 64, and it says, though a vital and crucial step, it'll have permanent little effect unless you do it once to be rid of the things that were blocking you. Alcohol is but a a symptom. So what's blocking me? Selfishness, self-centeredness. You know, those are the things that are blocking me. Dishonesty. You know, there's no better... There's no better sponsor than the day you start telling your sponsor everything you think and everything you feel and exactly what's going on. And my sponsor, I'm telling him the truth. And he said, Jeffrey, if the topic is ever honesty, don't raise your hand. (laughs) You don't know how to be honest. (laughs) And so it's so great to sponsor guys. And they tell you what's going on and they're being honest and they're being vulnerable. And you say to them, if the topic is ever honesty, don't raise your hand. <laughs> They're like, oh, that hurts. Yeah, you're not kidding. <laughs> and, um, you know, I was able to write down this fourth step and sit with a man and do a fifth step. And the meeting before the meeting today, a woman got up and was talking about how free, how freeing it is to look somebody in the eye and tell them the truth, how freeing it is to be able to, you know, watch your fears, fears fall from you. You know, and now I got some character defects that I can list. And my sponsor's great, he helps me list those. I'm a liar, I'm a thief, I'm a cheat, I'm dishonest, I'm not reliable, I'm not dependable, I'm not, and then he goes on and on. I have lists and lists of, but that's who I was. That's not who I am, and that's not who I'm becoming. Because AA says when you take a commitment and you show up, you're becoming dependable. When you are a treasurer and you don't take the money and you make the deposit, you're being honest, you know? You're making amends and living amends for the type of person that you were to the person that you want to become. You know, and that's the gift of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, that's the gift that you come in here and you start doing esteemable acts. You start being kind, considerate, and thoughtful. I know exactly when I'm not being any of those things. That's the gift of sobriety. I'm not perfect at it, you know, I, uh, and, and I'm the worst, you know, I deceive myself. You know, when we talk about character defects, I'm the last person that wants to acknowledge that I'm dishonest or that I'm hurtful or that I'm sarcastic. You know, sarcasm and cynicism is my favorite friends, man. That's the way, you know, I have a wife here who's smiling with the biggest grin because she knows exactly how I am. You know, let's talk a little bit about personal relationships because here's how I do relationships. I love you, I need you, I want you, you know, and I, but you're never getting any closer than this. Why? Because I am driven by a hundred forms of fear. Because I'm afraid that you're going to abandon me. I'm afraid that you're going to leave me. I'm afraid that you're going to find out that I'm not enough, that I don't know how to do this world, that I don't have enough integrity or self-esteem or self-worth, and I'm really just afraid. And so if I put up a wall of resistance, but I tell you all these nice, sweet things, then maybe you'll come close enough. And and I was able to lower my guard and be vulnerable with another person, and Teresa and I met. Now it's getting on to be 24 years ago, and uh, she is uh, 23 years sober, and I'm 31 years sober, and we've been married for 18 years. You know, and what we do is we built a life around Alcoholics Anonymous. It's the first thing we do. It's not the only thing we do, but it's the very first thing we do, and we make it connected. You know. My sponsor is great because when I say, Hey, I'm going to go away for the weekend. Well, where are you going? I'm going to go down to Monterey. Hey, bring me a meeting schedule from Monterey. <laughs> oh, okay. And it, it, how subtle was that? That was so good. That was so smooth. You know, Sabina is on her way to Greece with her sister today. And so we were talking last night. And I said, Hey, Sabina, bring me a meeting schedule from Greece. <laughs> She's like that's a great idea. I didn't even think of that. That is really good. I didn't think of, you know, it's like you know, the, the gift is that we get to travel a lot and we get to go a lot of places and we go to alcoholics anonymous everywhere. You know, if I had a uh, a little travel log of the places we've gone and the things we've done, you know, we can go and find alcoholics anonymous meeting in almost every city in the world. And, you know, we've gone to meetings in Kathmandu, and we've gone to meetings in Brookings, <laughs> you know, and we've gone to meetings here, you know, we've done a lot of service work, and we've involved in H&I, and it was a number of years ago, about five years ago, where we came up and started taking some meetings into Pelican Bay. You know, and then we would commute up, and now I know there's a bunch of people doing meetings in Pelican Bay. And Pelican Bay is getting an active Alcoholics Anonymous thriving community because of the people here in Crescent City. And there's some people that come down from Brookings in Southern Oregon, and there's also people that come up from Eureka. And there's also people that come from the Bay Area that want to help out, and they want to carry the message of hope to a very dark place. You know, and that's what, <clears throat> that's what we get to do in the rooms of AA. You know, one of the things that I love about Alcoholics Anonymous is that there's so many people and so many historians that have put, they put AA and they've, they've kept track of the places, you know. Has anybody here ever been to East Dorset, Vermont, where Bill Wilson was born? There's a couple hands in the room. You know, it's a place that you can go and you can see Bill and Lois' grave and you can, you can stay at the house that he, that he was born in. And we went back and we did that a few years back. And it makes the book come alive. You know, we went to the international convention in Toronto, and I said, hey, it's only a three-hour drive down to Cleveland, let's go down to Akron. And we went to Akron, and we got to meet with a docent who took us around and said, uh, you know what they did in the olden days? They went upstairs to the spare bedroom, and we were there with a couple from Atlanta, and Teresa and I, we got on, our knees, held on, got on our knees and held hands and did the third step prayer in Dr. Bob's house you know, that makes the book come up. How many people here signed up for Detroit? Anybody going to Detroit? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> you know, it's a two-hour drive down to Akron. Do it. Add in a couple extra days and take a ride down there and, and we're gonna do it and, and that's what we want to do because it makes it come alive. Teresa and I are married 10 years and she, she wanted to go to New York and see the city. I said, I'll go to New York, but, but only if we go out to uh, Bedford Hills and Stepping Stones because I want to go where Bill and Lois lived and I wanted to see that and and the people were talking about it in, in central office in uh, in New York saying hey you know that's the same train that Bill took out when he commuted in and out from San, uh, from New York City to his home in Bedford Hills and you know th- just taking that ride out there and, you know sure things have changed you know the buildings have changed but you know what that journey is the same the tracks are the same and the path that we tread here in Alcoholics Anonymous is the same you know I love when the book says, no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we can see our experience can benefit others. We will not regret the past or wish to shut the door on it. The only thing I wanted 31 years ago was amnesia. I wanted that to go away. I never thought I'd be standing in a room full of people telling you my deepest, darkest shame on the hopes that somebody won't take a drink today. You know, what a gift that is. Because if I would have had amnesia, I would have missed out on an opportunity to develop a relationship with God as my own understanding to read the book, to get self-esteem and self-worth and dignity back, to get all the things that I can look and now I can do a 10-step and grow in understanding and effectiveness for my fellow man. You know, the book talks about being careful not to drift into morbid morbid reflection of the past because it diminishes my chance of being useful to somebody else. That's what I want to do. I want to stay clear and looking forward and being in touch and trying to reach my hand out to the new guy because that's what you guys did for me. You know, I want everybody in this room to please keep coming back and give God the opportunity to turn your life into something beautiful. Thank you.